What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined, as always, by my trusty co-host, Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, we back after a little break. How you doing, man? We are back. Still catching up. A lot of important things still out there. Uh, but yeah, happy to be back. Uh, just like I'm sure Facebook is happy to be back today. Yeah. Uh, would you have missed Facebook if it was gone? Fuck no. I'd miss Instagram. Facebook yeah. Messenger has utility. But I don't use WhatsApp. But you know, a lot of people are much more uh, affected by such a thing. But Facebook itself, shit's a dinosaur. I was kind of hoping it was gone just, just for the chaos of it all. Just to see how people yeah. would react if it was actually gone. But alas, we're not that lucky. Um, but Dave, this is our first pod in October. And October is a huge month for us. We got a lot of good shit coming up. A lot of big movies coming out this month. So if you want to follow along, hit that subscribe button on YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod. SoundCloud.com slash NostalgiaPod to follow the podcast any way you want to. And also at NostalgiaPod on the Twitter, the one social media platform that did not go down today other than TikTok. Dave, we're going to start off our music today, though, with uh, British rapper. Ghanaian British rapper that we liked a lot the last album he put out, Edna. And that's Heady One dropping Too Loyal for My Own Good. You know, I, I, like, like I said, I think we really liked Edna. We were pretty impressed with that album. Do you feel like Heady One kept it rolling with Too Loyal for My Own Good? Yeah, sure. I'd say he kept it rolling. UK Drill Star at this point. Fast Ascension, but now quite well established as one of the top tier British rappers going these days. And I don't think we got anything that we haven't gotten before from heads, but what we're still getting, what we've come to expect from him is we always really solid. And when the beats are at their uh, most grimiest, they are their most eeriest in the drill sense. Uh, his flow, his his energy is always a good match. So I sort of liked it quite a bit. You know, this mixtape, I wasn't really expecting it, to be honest. This is the third project of his in the past two calendar years. So he's he's been working. Yeah, I, I definitely don't think this is like a step up or a step down from Edna. Pretty on par. I think the one thing that really stood out was it seemed like he was trying to expand the sound on this on this project a bit more right um you know there's a few songs a lot more mellow production especially near the back half of the project um there's also like a song or two where it sounds like he's in some some caribbean you know some afrobeat some dance hall in there and so i i appreciate him um you know expanding his horizons here but i think like you said where where the songs are best or when he's in his zone with the, the grimy drill vibes for sure. So uh, nothing like groundbreaking, but what, what, what were the, the songs you liked the most? Right. So for me, the clear highlight is beggars can't be choosers, which was one oh, of yeah. the uh, singles just because the beat fucking goes mm-hmm. and Hetty is just on one the whole time on that song. It's a, just a great banger. And I think he kind of, kept it going throughout this mixtape i don't know i don't feel like he's 
uh, performed in this way in the past, but there was a lot of uh, punchlines on this tape, yeah. a lot of a lot of references, and uh, like I noticed them at least in a way that I hadn't noticed them in the past. But I think on Beggars Can't Be Choosers was it the uh, the Bryson Tiller Mac Miller line uh, is quite notable to me. Later on, two chains, you know, uh, I feel like the weekend wake up while I see his blinding lights, whatever he says. A lot, a lot of like obvious like punchlines on this. Yeah. But I think for beggars can't be choosers. Like that shit just fucking bangs, and that, that's what I yeah. love from from Hetty because his best songs are just crazy bangers. Yeah, uh, that was the clear standout to me as well. And actually, I think beggars can't be choosers and two chains back to back was by far my favorite one too yeah. on the album. Um, just. And it's just really uh, catchy wordplay on the, you know, on the hooks there. So it just really sticks with you. Um, and I, th- I think that was certainly where he, it seemed to me like he was uh, operating at the highest. Um, I, a couple other tracks that I really liked. I thought P- PTSD near the back was pretty interesting. Like the production on that sounded pretty cool. Um, you know, kind of a bit more like almost like at the beginning almost sounds like the beats going in reverse in a sense. It was pretty interesting. Um but I got like I gotta be honest. The second half of, of this project lost me a little bit because I feel like it really like became very inconsistent. Things like Louis Vuitton collar or finer things, bit more like toned down and like going for a more like smooth sound that I don't don't think mm. really fit him. But I appreciate him trying. And then that's followed up with something like Long Night in Knightsbridge, which is a little harder and a little more that drill sound. So it just kind of is going back up and down mm. to I think more than. I was hoping for, but um, certainly some interesting stuff on here. What else stood out to you? Yeah, we, we look back on his uh, mixtape with Fred again, Gang, from earlier in 2020, subverting drill expectations and doing things that are a little outside the box was done in a more noticeable, I think, just higher level way on that mixtape than you know some of the stuff on this one. That being said, I think a song like Cry is really uh, notable for not being a drill beat, flipping Buster Rhymes in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. I like that song a lot. But uh, still, when I hear the fucking horror movie soundtrack that is the beat for 2 Chains, it's just, you know, this is what he does. This is what he's done for a few years now. It's really good. So yeah. when you, you know, push a T only raps about cocaine, but there's a reason for that, you know? So it's okay <laughs> if you're not the most versatile artist the way like someone like Stormzy in the UK is you know it's okay yeah I I completely agree and uh, especially when when you're in your lane like Hedy One was on Beggars Can't Be Choosers and Two Chains it's just uh, you're operating at such a high level you really don't have to venture out too much to be successful so I, th- I think overall pretty satisfied with this even if it was a surprise um we're going to add a, one or two songs onto our Now Such a Best of 2021 playlist. So follow us on Spotify. But Dave, Meek Mill also dropped a project. And I saw you tweeting about this one, I think, last night. How are you feeling about Expensive Pain? Yeah, so Meek Mill's Expensive Pain was only announced, I think, two, three weeks ago. And I had missed that announcement. So I was not expecting this album. And I was pleasantly surprised. I thought this shit was fucking good. Uh, you know, and I've had low expectations for Meek Mill for quite a while. You know, but 
before he went to jail, before everything happened, where he, you know, triumphantly uh, left jail and has become a bit of a folk hero and a uh, every man and an activist as well. Before all that, I had already been really down on Meek Mill as just a rapper. You know, I, I thought the early MMG days had notably peaked. There was a clear arc on the quality scale. And, you know, the last album, the comeback album, Championships from 2018, I think exceeded everyone's expectations and uh, going bad with the big Drake feature was a big song. Uh, but this album, I actually think, as Meek Mill had tweeted himself, might be better than Championships just because it's almost simpler and back to the basics, but still has a few different modes because there's some autotune, there's some singing on this as well. So I think it's just, I was just un, uh, surprised and uh, taken aback by how much I liked uh, a Meek Mill album, you know, Expensive Pain. So very happy with this one. Yeah, I was definitely surprised at, I think, how many songs really popped, like, or really stood out, you know, because it's a long album, it's 18 songs, almost an hour. So usually you're you're going to have, like, times when the energy kind of falls, but, you know, I have not being a big Meek fan prior to this, I was kind of thinking, oh, this might be a slog of a listen. It didn't feel that way, but, like, it kept, like, a pretty crisp pace, um, and even the the times when it really like dragged, I, it was like maybe a song or two, and then it got right back to a banger. I felt like um, I thought the features were all pretty choice, and I think most people who came onto this album gave a pretty good showing, which I think definitely adds something. But even some of the songs Meek was on his own, like I think the first two tracks are just absolute fire way to start the album. Man, <laughs> intro hate on me. Um, having the, like the hate me now strings kind of like coming in the yes. background every once in a while. And then outside 100 miles per hour is just like seriously 100 mile per hour. Like, for, yeah, you know, like he was in fact stepping on the gas pedal. Yep. Uh, so just like an awesome way to start the album, you know, like a couple of times when maybe it like slowed down, like I didn't really like love, love train, but then you get North side, mm. South side with, with uh, gigs on the next track. And I just thought they sounded great together. Like It yeah. was just like, it didn't it never lagged for too long, which I appreciated. Totally, totally. Uh, the third track, "On My Soul," I think has been getting a bit of a mixed reception. And Meek has always been a storyteller, I guess, an underrated storyteller because his trademark is the rapid fire flows, the loud delivery. But "On My Soul" is more of that storytelling side, notably with auto tune. I actually think he sounds pretty good on that, to be honest. Uh, definitely not what I was expecting. Uh, not that that's my favorite thing for Meek, of course. I think he's at his best when he's keeping the energy high. And like you said, this album never lulls one way or the other. He will take his uh, breaks on the track list with a with a love song, you know, whether Kaylani's popping up or he's using a lot of doing himself, mm. slowing it down. And then immediately jump back into some kind of banger that we're more familiar with, right? Sharing Locations. I did not expect to hear him trade bars with Baby and Dirk the way he did. Like I thought that was actually really awesome, you know. And mm-hmm. I would have loved if that song was maybe a minute or two longer because I, I think everyone's almost taken a break. Like the first like minute and a half, it's really just one or two bars. Next guy's turn, you know. But it's still cool to hear because mm-hmm. you just don't get people train bars like that all that often. Um, and I also loved um, me featuring Ferg. I thought Ferg 
was really great, and there's some really funny wordplay on that song. So overall, quite pleased with this one. But yeah, it it, it does uh, uh you know run a little long. But then again, like to have you know six, seven, eight tracks on a Meek Mill album that I'm like actually quite enthusiastic about, you know, it's a good feeling. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you mentioned me, uh, fuck with me, track seven, and track eight, hot with money bag yo. Uh, I thought that sounded pretty great too. It had a little bit of like a future, like a mask on, mask off vibe to it a little <laughs> bit with like the, I don't know if it was a whistle or whatever that like wood instrument was in the background, but uh, I thought they traded really well too. Um, also, in the second half of the album, Tweaking with Vori really yeah. stood out to me as like, a really yeah high energy track and just like they they both crushed it. So I was really impressed with this, and it feels like it feels like Meek for someone who's I think gained attention from things outside of his music being really good. You know, obviously all the feuds you mentioned, you know the the folk hero status with his. Uh, time in prison and his release um this feels like a real step up in in the music sense so it's really exciting stuff for yeah. sure at the end of the day it's just nice to see that because meeks you know a bit of a messy character online you know a bit of mm-hmm. a, a personality so it's nice to see that the music is still keeping up and that he's you know earning all his attention because uh, at yeah. the end of the day if people don't care about meek mill's music they're not really going to care about uh, the causes he's supporting so you need to have both yeah, and shout out uh, Robert Kraft, probably the biggest Meek Mill fan in the <laughs> world. Right. So, uh, I think we're going to move on from Meek Mill to Apple TV, where Foundation premiered, uh, what, about two two weeks ago now, I think? Uh, yep, two weeks ago. There's now three episodes out, premiered with two. Now, then it'll go week to week, like everything else on Apple TV+. Plus. Yeah, and Foundation... Wasn't really something I was too tuned into. I think maybe I saw a preview the week before it came out uh, when I was watching Ted Lasso, and I was I was intrigued because it, I mean I mean it's sci-fi, looks like high-level, expensive sci-fi. Um, so uh, you know, you mentioned you wanted to watch this one. I was like, yeah, this sounds pretty good. Created by David uh, Goyer and uh, Josh Friedman. Not that that really means anything to us, but. Uh, I mean, Dave, put some respect on David Goyer's name. He's, sure. uh, you know, Batman Begins, Dark Knight. He's a industry veteran with some good credits. Uh, yeah, but not really for, like, this genre, I guess, when I think about it, but yeah, sure. maybe. I mean, but, making sci-fi for television, few people are experienced in it, especially good, this, good point. this scale. So, Good point. Um, Dave, were you, one, looking forward to Foundation? Was this something that was on your radar? And two, did you feel like the premiere which we're only talking about the first episode today did you feel like the premiere hooked you like brought you in so i was not checking for this one this is based off the series of isaac asimov novels very well regarded i think they post-war novels he added them add to them over the decades so it's quite the long-running series and the latest entry in the desire to create the next Game of Thrones, right? We, we know that uh, everyone has been buying up the sci-fi uh, IPs, the big, the big stories, the big franchises, right? Amazon will be giving us Wheel of Time in November. 
uh, HBO's already tried this, I guess, in another sense with his Dark Materials, which is uh, oh, up and down. And, and of course, Peacock with Brave New World, which I think is an is a important corollary to Foundation because both books were considered unfilmable due to their grand themes that don't necessarily lend themselves to the most cinematic storytelling, you know? So, so this, we've been thinking about this for a while, right? And I wasn't specifically checking for a foundation, but the idea of Apple does a sci-fi show and they try and get a lot of people to watch it. Like, okay, yeah, well, I understand this. And mm-hmm. I was really impressed with the pilot for Foundation, having mm-hmm. not read the book. And I think it's really just because the, the production values are crazy, man. They spent, you know, like $200 million on this show. And it shows. It looks incredible. Yeah, it does look and good. I don't have any, uh, you know, connection to the books. I know they've changed the books a lot to make it more uh, cinematic, more palatable to film in terms of creating conflict, gender flipping characters, inserting emotion. Apparently, the books are quite dry. I don't really care about the changes, and you know, I still really don't know where this is going to go because it's a quite the data dump in the pilot. But for me, it's just like the the scale of the world building grabbed me through one episode so i'm definitely looking forward to seeing uh, whether whether it succeeds through one season yeah i think uh, i i agree i think what i was most taken by was definitely the like just the high level production in terms of the cgi you know the the worlds the landscapes you know the what what, the, what was that space station called uh yeah with the yeah with the uh, the, like, the land bridge elevator yeah. going down yeah really cool and that planet yeah. very reminiscent of a coruscant from star wars to me as well exactly. big city all that yeah and, and especially uh near the end where i guess if you haven't watched but you're tuning in like spoiler skip ahead for like a couple seconds when the that there's a terrorist attack and they show things blowing up and like the response in the worlds it really felt like like it was really like convincing and just like wow that was like amazingly done i think what I had a hard time kind of following was I felt like the conflict was very like high level type shit. You know, mm-hmm. it's like there's this theory, the psycho history theory that Jared Harris's character is yes. now being like wrongly I- imprisoned for. Yes, and he's this... a mathematician and is like grand algorithm predicting the demise of society. Yeah. Be broad. And uh, the, uh, the main character there, Gal Dornick, played by Lou Lobel, is also arrested to, you know, say that his theory is wrong because it will cause an uprising if people really believe in it or something like that. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, she doesn't destabilize so, society, which I, I, I think I followed that pretty well. But at the same time, it felt like I was like, am I missing things or things like really making sense? And I think. Like you said, it's a, it's a lot of information, so probably have to give episode two and three a bit of a shot just to see if it kind of finds its footing. Because I felt like it was just so much exposition, so much data dumping that it was almost like, is this going to be just a slog to follow and like having to like piece together all this stuff, almost like doing homework every week. Um, but Game of Thrones also felt like that at first, you know, learning the world, learning all these right. new characters, learning the connections of the family. So. Uh, I think I think we have to give it a little more time before I can maybe make that judgment. Did you feel the same way? Yeah, so I think the key difference there would be that Game of Thrones in the early goings, when you didn't understand uh, the map of Westeros, when you didn't understand 
what the various families were, you still understood the dramatic tension of the chamber drama and people yeah. talking in rooms and plotting things. That also tracked and True. intrigued. Foundation, again, from what I understand about this book and how it was adapted and previously many attempts failed to even get this off the ground, it's just really hard not to crack, apparently, is that there's just not actually a lot of conflict minute to minute because it's a story that expands like thousands of years. You know, this show apparently <clears throat> is going to cover decades forward and back in this first season. So when you're that big of a scale, you still have to try and manufacture individual conflict, right? And right. I guess through one episode, the individual like conflict is completely foreign to us. We don't know what it's going to be, right? Because mm -hmm. they're being sent off in exile to do more research, perhaps to benefit the empire down the line. Cool. That's just an open book. We have no idea what's going to happen next, right? right. So this show could completely fizzle out and not be that cool after the pilot, yeah. right? So it's a lot of TBD. Uh, one of the changes that, that uh, everyone seems to be celebrating, I thought was really cool, was that they changed the way these Ember characters work and the, the three identities, the clones, right? The young mm -hmm. uh, adult and old is a new change, right? But I think it's an important way to ground uh, your conflict, ground your character dynamics as the show moves around decade-wise because you have these cloned people. That way the actors can stay the same. And of course, yeah. the pace is a huge highlight to have here, of course. So sure, uh, it's just it's still a lot of unknown, right? And like, but seeing the seeing the production value, at least in that first episode, uh, has me hooked, has me intrigued, and I'm cautiously optimistic, I guess. So, but it, we got we got to see more. It definitely feels like the best attempt at this like large scale since uh, Game of Thrones. Obviously, I think the one that we're all waiting for is Amazon's uh, Game of Thrones or not Game of Thrones. Sorry. Uh, Lord <laughs> yeah. of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. Uh, Lord of, of the Rings one. But I think that's not even till end of next year that we'll be Correct. seeing that. So. And I have, we got, I have a lot of confidence in that, to be honest. So I do too. Get, yeah. Get, getting something else is pretty cool. And then like for this, I mean, this is kind of a heat check for Apple, right? Apple yeah. just dropping a bag on this shit, you know? It's like, oh, you said this shit was unfilmable? Well, let's find out, you know? We don't yeah. care. <laughs> and, like, I mean, they already won Best Comedy Series in their second year of operation at the Emmys with Ted Lasso. Apple TV Plus is ahead of schedule. So Foundation yeah. is even a modest success for them. It's probably a huge, uh, a huge win. Huge win. And so. Goyer claims that he has 80 episodes planned because there's that much book material, so... If we, if it's right. successful enough to get that far, I mean, again, huge tubby, but yeah, we we got we got to see more, right? We got to see like how the how the how the tension, how the drama can work, because apparently that's a lot of new, a lot a lot of you know new creation. So, a lot of TBD, a lot of TBD. Uh, check out Foundation. Let us know what you think, Dave. You could say it uh, laid the foundation. Ah, there it is. Um, I was I was actually really excited to talk to you today about Star Wars Visions. First of all, this is a show I this is a style of show I, I would not have usually watched. I've watched some anime cartoons, but it's probably the ones that most people who aren't huge fans of anime watch. You know, things like Pokemon, the original cartoon mm. series, or like Yu Gi Oh, stuff like that. You know, like those like typical ones, but stuff that was easily accessible. Ball. In the U.S. in the 2000s. Exactly. And uh, 
we talked about um, Greta Gerwig and the the fly or whatever that that was. Earwig uh, and the witch. The yeah, uh, Earwig and the witch. <laughs> the very poor Studio Ghibli entry. Yes, exactly. that was pretty recent. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think anime in and of itself has just like made, been growing within the United States consciousness, and now yeah, Star Wars just getting all these awesome anime animation studios to make uh, an episode or two for their uh, short anthology series about just like different Star Wars stories, mostly about Jedi and Sith. But uh, man, I, I I was really impressed with this. This was like very interesting. And, you know, I, I think we'll talk in a minute about this juxtaposed against Marvel's What If, <laughs> but I definitely found this to be, I think, a little bit more intriguing. I find both shows pretty intriguing, but I found this to be a little bit more intriguing um, than that, only because this I felt like this brought in the concept that The Last Jedi was kind of going for at the end, right? That mm. they they steered away from, but like the idea that like there's Jedi out there and there's all these different stories and anyone can kind of be it and there's all this different stuff going on that we don't actually see because mm. we just follow this one family around all the time. Yeah. And it feels like this is kind of what where Visions is going. It's like, yeah, there's a lot more shit going on than just the Skywalkers. Yeah. I mean, th- this is what you get when something's not canon and you just take the gloves off, take the training wheels off and let inspired fans, inspired creators do their spin, do their pitch on things. From what we understand, that's how Disney is approaching the movies with Lucasfilm, right? At, at this point. And it makes a lot of sense because uh, Star Wars is completely indebted to uh, the Eastern influences, right? Uh, George Lucas <laughs> openly citing Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress as the inspiration for A New Hope, after all. And we've had, uh, I guess, nods to anime, uh, anime specifically, in Star Wars uh, more recently with uh, the original Star Wars Clone Wars micro-series on Cartoon Network from uh, Gendy Tartakovsky, which is, you know, kind of like, I guess, like, after our last Airbender sense, this something that's clearly Western but also very clearly inspired by anime. And to get Star Wars Visions, which apparently was pitched by uh, the showrunner James Wogg, who's a Lucasfilm vice president, uh, to get this, I think, just shows the possibility of taking the, again, taking the gloves off. And that's despite the fact that, as you mentioned, this is still quite focused on largely the Force, Jedi, and Sith, right? Mm-hmm. Imagine Star Wars Visions where we just got some smugglers, some spacers, some yeah. droids only, only, droid only stories. They're, again, Star Wars is such a sandbox so we could do truly anything, right? And still, what we got, uh, you can't blame people for wanting to do their spin on the Jedi and the Sith, right? Because uh, shit's fucking cool, man. Yeah. <laughs> and you could tell that the creators behind this agree that the shit's cool. And mm-hmm. uh, I loved it. And I, I also just love how, how self-contained everything is, right? Again, we'll get to what if in a second, but I, I just love that so many of these shorts, which range from like 14 to 22 minutes, so many of these shorts leave you wanting so much more. So they're so rich in such a short amount of time. Just really, again, shows how inspired the creation of these were, which apparently was quite a challenging creation because the pandemic started and liaising between Lucasfilm 
and uh, these seven uh, animation studios over in Japan became more challenging, right? Because all the in-person meetings went went away. But yeah, I loved it. Uh, did you have any uh, ones that stood out to you? Again, because these are all not connected to each other. It's a complete anthology. Yeah. So I know I definitely did. I thought the first episode, the duel, um, yeah. was really, really strong and totally sucked me in. Um, but then kind of moving on, I thought the ninth Jedi was a really interesting episode. Yeah. Um, that one definitely uh, like stood out. And then also, what was it? The duel? Was that? Or no, the it was the, the first one. The Elder. So it was yes. the Elder. I really love the Elder. It's actually the one I chose for the background. If you're watching on YouTube, um, I just really loved that whole like vibe and, you know, like the old kind of crazy Sith Lord. Um, <laughs> he was, oh, I wish I had my powers with me or I wish I was as strong. I just th- thought that guy was so creepy and great. Yeah. Um, what about you? What's the, which one stood out to you? Yeah, I love those ones as well. I also really love the Village Bride which hmm. I think Village Bride is really cool because that gave me some hardcore Studio Ghibli vibes because of the emphasis in the story on being in tune with nature and how that affects the force and stuff. Um, thematically very very Japanese, but also uh, specifically for very, very Ghibli. Really like that. Um, the, the thing that duels are an awesome way to start this too because clearly a nod to... Um, Kurosawa's uh, Yojimbo, yeah. right? It's a very familiar, um, you know, thing. Even like Seven Samurai as well. Just like the uh, wandering people, wandering mm-hmm. Ronin defends uh, helpless village versus attackers. Exactly. Right? It's really cool. Yeah. But the black and white uh, animation mm-hmm. style, really cool. But then again, because this is non-canon, because this is self-contained, they just get to do cool shit, right? The Sith there. She's rocking uh, a lightsaber blade with this umbrella ar- apparatus that makes like all these blades that spin. It's like fucking cool, yeah. right? And a bit of a subversion at the end when he realizes Ronin figure seems to be uh, a Sith, a, a dark side user as well. He just mm-hmm. got pissed and decided to fuck this person up. And you see at the end, he's got a bunch of other red crystals and maybe he's on the path to redemption. Who knows? There's actually a book coming out called Star Wars Visions Ronin coming out in October. Mm. They'll continue this story. So I'm confident Great. we're going to get more Star Wars Visions. It might take a while given how long it, may, it takes to you know, uh, make animation, but I thought the duel was was really cool. And thinking back, when I first saw the trailer for Star Wars Visions, because it, it was announced Disney Investor Day 2020, like, oh, Star Wars Visions, anime storytellers take their spin. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Didn't really see that coming from Lucasfilm. But when I saw that trailer, with the score, I was like, oh no, this shit rips, and this is 100% some anime-ass shit. You know, there, there's no half measures yeah. with Star Wars Visions, and that's what's so great about it. Yeah, no, they, they definitely totally go for it. I mean, even episodes like like the second one, Tatooine Rhapsody, didn't yeah. love that one, but Same. I still give them a lot of credit because, like, it's obviously a very, like, very much the style of um, that animation uh, studio, Colorido, and mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they were doing something different. They were infusing music in there. They were exploring Jabba the Jabba the Hutt's the Hutt's son. <laughs> like I was like, okay, some kind like of young Hutt character, yeah, yeah. Which I was like, oh, that's interesting. We hadn't really seen a lot of that like before. So I, I appreciate them kind of going all out. Um, and yeah, like like you said, just like they didn't try to tame them for American audiences. They're like, you know, make your story 
people will either like it or not, but we're going to put out what we, what you want to put out, which I really appreciate. Right. Um, what did you think of uh, the, the twins, that episode with like sure. the brother, sister? Yeah. So the twins is made by studio trigger and you can tell because that animation style is just like their flagship series, uh, kill a kill. Mm-hmm. And I kind of like recognize that right away and saw that going in. But yeah, I mean, that, that one's a little different because the twins are just chilling in the vacuum of space, NBD, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I thought that one is not my favorite, but uh, I liked it as like a different spin. Yeah, I, I, I definitely, that was my second to least favorite, only because I, I kind of felt like the whole like one, like, I don't know, it just felt like over-dramatized and just kind of like weird and I don't know. But it it just didn't work for me or didn't stand out to me, I guess. But that's actually one I'd love to check out because uh, th- this came out on Disney Plus with uh, Japanese voice acting as well as the English dub. And the English dub has a big voice cast, but so does the Japanese voice cast as well. A lot of big, uh, famous players in terms of uh, anime voice work. And I, I'm curious how, if that one's more effective with uh, Japanese voice because they, they they do sound a bit uh, a bit a bit uh, juvenile. Yeah, with the English voice and the twins. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, overall, I thought this was great. You know, we mentioned Marvel's What If. I know you're not a fan. I think I've liked it a little bit more than you, but I, I haven't been keeping up with it. It hasn't been holding my attention as much. Um, you know, I saw your tweet basically saying, like, uh, well, well, just just like give the essence of your tweet. I don't remember exactly. Well, I just think this is what Marvel's what if should have been. This is what Marvel's what if wishes it was because mm-hmm. they didn't take the training wheels off of what if the blinders are still on. It's just really safe and not that interesting to me. It's interesting to lots of super fans. It's a successful show. It's already getting a second season. It's my my opinion doesn't matter, but like. I, I just don't find it that cool because it's like the basic, like slightest tweak of a riff, you know, and it's like, oh, well, what if Ultron won? Like, yeah, everyone seems to love that episode, but I, I, I just feel like it's still not actually the spirit of an anthology series because, and maybe that's because it's technically quote unquote Marvel canon because of the multiverse, right? So they almost don't want to go too far. I don't really know. But I, I I just don't think it has done much to differentiate itself from other Marvel television shows, even though this is technically a Marvel Studios show. So uh, I, I just had higher expectations as well. Whereas I think with Star Wars Visions, this is clearly something that has a greater vision, you know, and just way more cool to me. Yeah. You know, I, I think the thing that's, been interesting to me about the what if is just kind of like the domino effect of things and some of the concepts that they explore are pretty cool you know there's i think i really like the episode with strange and you know like what if he couldn't save uh uh his girlfriend um Rachel Rachel adams McAdams. uh <laughs> you know all that stuff uh and i thought that was pretty cool basically how it ended up like being him versus him type of thing but you know I think what has made the what if pieces pop has been like the shock value pieces. Like I think it's the third episode where like Thor and Captain America and whoever else are killed by Hank Pym. And like that got, I saw that getting a lot of attention because it was like the big players were like taken out. Right. Um, 
It may, I think it might have been like actually like Iron Man and Thor or whatever and Hulk. But regardless, I, I think why Visions probably is a better show is because it didn't need the like shock value of it all to really stand out and be something interesting. It was interesting because of like, you know, like you said, the vision of the show for lack of a better term right yeah. now, um, just being more forward thinking and thoughtful and explorative of the universe. So, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. just think about what which is probably the most popular short from Star Wars Visions, the ninth Jedi. The Nine Jedi has a really effective twist, but more importantly, actually introduces a really intriguing yet simple concept to Star Wars that really hasn't been explored before, that your lightsaber would almost adapt depending on who it's being wielded by. And the revelation that the color is all dependent on the true nature of the wielder I think is really good and it really plays into that twist because that that episode is already kind of subverting expectations right the guy who clearly looks sinister you know with the the red visor and stuff oh no that's actually the good guy and all these really nice looking seemingly noble ass jedi figures no actually they're the sith right and to take that a step further with these these revelations about how lightsabers function in this particular story uh something like that I, I just find that like a much higher level than anything we've been getting from what if, which is, I think, not concerned with something that big. Like what if isn't trying to change how you think about the MCU in an, even in a small way. So it's just a different goal, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. MCU, we're going to be talking about them in a second, but it's like so into this idea of like the multiverse and all these different timelines, but you know, I was thinking, I think there there's possibility for a show similar to this, probably around someone like Captain Marvel, who is you know, admittedly doing some like universe hopping and, and world hopping, you know, down the line to do something where she's just in a different world every episode, like, in, uh, and just kind of like exploring what's out there. But I don't think Marvel's nearly there yet. I think when you're as uh, tapped out as Star Wars was with their main storyline, you kind of have to start exploring these other stories. And this is, uh, I don't know, this is a great product of it. So I'm, I'm happy for it. And honestly, we've gotten some really good Star Wars uh, stuff on Disney Plus. So uh, keep it going. Really, really right. happy with that. All right, let's move on to movies today. And we're going to start with a Netflix movie that came out. Jake Gyllenhaal, our guy. I, I like Jake Gyllenhaal. I'd say I'm a fan. And he stars in The Guilty. Uh, a remake of a... Is it Danish or Swedish? Uh, Danish. Danish. Danish film from 2018 that was shortlisted for the Best International Feature Film, but not nominated. And it's pretty much Gyllenhaal, a few other people that you see who are in the uh, 911 dispatch and then all these voice actors, some pretty famous voice actors at that. And Gyllenhaal is basically a uh, ex-cop who is, uh, you know, removed from being a cop for we don't know why until the very end. And he gets, uh, you know, he's being a nine one one dispatcher to stay close to his work in some way. And he gets really sucked into this uh, abduction call, or what he thinks is an abduction call, and uh, the movie details his experience in trying to help this woman that he believes has been abducted um i think the concept's really interesting 
from what you shared with me prior, Dave, I think this is uh, not as good as the original. I haven't seen the original. I know you have. Um, it was entertaining, but overall just kind of didn't work for me totally. Uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll get into a, uh, that more, but did you like it? Did you not? Yeah, so I, I would recommend the original, which is available right now on Hulu. And the reason I'd recommend the original over this English remake is because I think the tension is just more consistent in the original iteration, and our central performance uh, is more in sync with the drama of the story. I think Jake takes it a little, uh, little, little too far, honestly. And part of that's a script, like some subtle tweaks that make it more dramatic, but. It's plenty dramatic in its original incarnation, and I actually think it's more harrowing as a result. Uh, Jake, Jake kind of like is off his rocker a little bit yeah. towards the end of this, and it just didn't feel uh, the way it should have been. Because for the most part, there's a lot of like word for word lines throughout a, a lot of this movie, especially the first hour. And hearing them watching that after just recently seeing the original, it's like, oh well this feels like a karaoke of sorts to me, you know? And I really hope the Another Round English remake with another Denmark uh, film, I really hope that doesn't go this route if they do, in fact, make that remake because, I mean, the original is really, really good as it is. I think the, the key twist that happens in the story when you, you learn something more about the nature of the call, that really lands in the original film. And, uh, how did how do you think it landed for you here? Because like for me, I already I knew it was coming, so it, it's a little different. But how do you feel that was handled in this one? Um, I feel like it fell a little flat, honestly, and also I felt like it was a bit telegrammed. You know, it it was a sort of thing where it felt way too straightforward, at, you know, throughout the movie for that to just be how things were going to go. So I kind of expected some sort of twist. Um. I have to say, probably the scene that was most effective for me was when he was on the phone with the cops as they entered the uh, the home of the abducted people or the supposed abducted, and then they're responding to seeing a child mm. in distress. I, that that really hit home in this, but um, I didn't think the twist landed so well. Did you? No, I, I what you would say when the cops the, the cop call there you just referenced. I think that actually works really well in the original because there's no like background noise where you like hear the cops barging in and like talking to themselves and like freaking out and like, like, you know, through, through the phone, you don't hear any of that. It's like just like silence and like uh, the, the, you know, the, the dispatcher is just like asking like what's going on. So I think that the, again, the tension just uh, highlighted more because you're even more at arm's length as if you were in the original yeah. one. So yeah, yeah I mean, I, it, 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 it's, a, it's a funny movie to remake, I guess, because on one hand, it's like really simple film to make because it's all dialogue in one set, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I understand why it was remade. It's easy enough. Antoine Fuqua and Jake G, that, that'll get it done, that they can make get this thing made. But uh, I, guess, I guess like creatively, there's nothing like added added to it if anything i think this is just a lesser version so it's uh it's not i guess it's not offensive but it's just kind of a you know unceremoniously mediocre yeah you know i, I have to say out of the voice cast i really thought that um 
Divine Joy Randolph really brought a lot of what you're talking about um, in terms of the original. Because every time she got on as the CHP dispatcher, she was like so slow and like quiet when how she first answered. It kind of gave this very like eerie feeling. Um, I thought she was probably the best voice acting. Um, I appreciated our guy Eli Gorey getting some uh, some shine in this. You know, getting a pretty meaty voice role as Rick. And uh, did you did you recognize Ethan Hawke's voice when he? I did. I actually thought that was a little distracting. To be honest, again, because I kind of knew knew what that character was, but yeah, I, I didn't yeah. catch that. I I I recognized it, but I couldn't place it until I looked it up. Um, you know who was distracting to me was Bill Burr as the nightclub caller. He was just like so yeah. obviously Bill Burr. I was like, uh, okay, <laughs> quite a bit. Honestly, uh, so many of those early lines are verbatim. The only thing they change is like locations in the city. Uh, was it Copenhagen in the LA? Like other than that, it's like the same issues, the same types of calls, the same lines from the dispatcher. It's like all like word for word. It's kind Did of they had the wildfire too, or was that no? So that's that, obviously yeah. an LA creation. Right. Okay. I think so you know, in the original, it's just like uh, it's just like really foggy when they're trying to find gotcha. the van. But it's the same thing. It's like uh, white or silver. It's like the same same answer, yeah. but it was just Jeez. like foggy, foggy in at night. I guess. Yeah, it seems like a uh, a movie that didn't need to be remade as an english movie but hey it's what it's what we do uh not not jakey g's best but like you said it was probably cheap to make so they were netflix always gonna take that on I mean, why don't they we make on? like what 100 movies a year they, they, they make the most movies of anyone so they got they gotta yeah. they gotta get them in <laughs> exactly well why, why don't we move on to something that was a little more expensive to make we're back to marvel now uh carnage or should i say venom let there be carnage. Um, saw this last night, Sunday. Theater was pretty packed. Did really well at the box office. Way as far as uh, ex- exceeded expectations for the weekend. Mm-hmm. I think they said the successful weekend would have been like forty-five to sixty million, and they made over ninety million worldwide. Pretty yeah. amazing. The biggest box office weekend of the pandemic thus far domestically. And also the biggest October weekend, uh, almost the biggest October weekend ever, just just behind uh, Joker. So, uh, in general, a, b- a big weekend for the fall. Yeah, it's a huge, uh, a huge win for the box office, and the theaters. Also coupled with a really successful international launch for No Time to Die. It was really nice to see, and a big box office pop. Dune also has been successful in the uh, previous weeks, so that's cool and. Yeah, the Marvel the Marvel machine uh, gets people out, you know. But to actually see Venom like dust off Shang Chi's previous high mark by like fifteen million, it's kind of yeah. kind of wild, you know. But if yeah, people, especially I don't know if people are hyped for anything with Spider Man. I think that's what yeah. it comes down to. It will, especially because this movie isn't nearly as good as Shang Chi. Well, I mean, no, 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 no shit. Like, yeah. I mean, this is a. Uh, I, I was trying. I was sitting in the movie theater waiting for the movie to start, and I was like, "What do I remember about the first Venom movie?" I didn't remember anything, dude. <laughs> I didn't remember shit. Like, I was like, "Okay, I know. Uh, I know Eddie Brock. I know mm-hmm. uh, Venom is, you know, now attached to him." And that was about it. Like, that was 
as much as I could really remember. I mm. even forgot that what's her name, uh, Michelle Williams, is in right. this. Like, yeah. what the, why is she in these movies? Ven- Venom at one point takes over her, which comes back again in this movie. Yeah, yeah well, he takes over a lot of people in this, mm-hmm. uh, including the uh, who, who's the lady in the bodega? Uh, Mrs. She, she, Chen, uh, I believe. Yeah, I liked her. That was my yeah. favorite part about her. But so the thing that I remembered most about uh, the original Venom. Was just was this just a reverent sense of humor, and namely that this is like lowest common denominator humor that I still find really amusing. You know, harkens back to like which is referenced in the, in this sequel, uh, the lobster tank scene where Tom oh, Hardy yeah. literally dives into the lobster and starts eating lobsters, li- uh, living lobsters, right? Because of Venom's uh, you know, satiable uh, uh, hunger, hunger for a certain form of brain and all that right and i like that humor and i think that's the best part about the first movie which otherwise has a lot of like mid-2000s uh vibes to its yeah. storytelling as far as superhero films go you know it's it's a step below marvel uh cinematic universe it's a step below dc modern dc it's a step below the best of fox's x-men you know mm-hmm. so thankfully the humor is there albeit how dumb it is, at least, at least something is there that holds my attention, because for the most part, the plot and the action does not. And I was quite disappointed, and not that I had high expectations, I was quite disappointed that Venom 2 is basically just everything about the first movie, but just not as good. And the first <laughs> one already was not that good. So this is yeah. uh, not the kind of decline we need. Well, the, the the good thing about not really remembering much about the first movie is I didn't really know uh, or I didn't remember that it was a lot of what was in the first movie. So I was like, oh, this is uh, this is interesting. But yeah, I, I kind of got it as we we're going like, oh, yeah, the whole like, you know, they're like making fun of each other. They don't really want to be attached, but they kind of want to be attached. That whole like, will they won't they type thing. Right. The buddy, buddy cop almost. Yeah. I gotta say the whole stuff with like Woody Harrelson and Naomi Harris and. Yeah. All that. Oh, Carnage that and Shriek. Really yeah, yeah, that shit sucks. No question. <laughs> why, like, why is Woody Harrelson doing this? Like, well, Woody Harrelson was in like the post credit scene of Venom 1. He was cast as Carnage for a while. He but looked more just, clown-like. He had that big red hair, remember? That's right. Yeah, different haircut yeah. for sure. But like the thing is, the characterization is just super one-note. You know, I mean, Woody Harrelson is not given a chance to do anything cool. It's just really weak. And if you think about how this movie works... It's surprisingly only 90 minutes long. And the first, like, hour of this movie, there's, like, barely been any direct conflict between Venom and Carnage, or two titular uh, villains, anti-heroes, whatever, right? And structurally, it's just, like, it's just a lot of, like, basic stuff, right? Like, the whole origin of Carnage and Shriek and, like, how that goes. Like, we certainly did not need a flashback of Carnage and Shriek, notably young young uh, Cletus Cassidy is voiceovered by Woody Harrelson still. Like, first That's of all, so why weird. did you do that? You just had that guy talk? <laughs> like, what the fuck? Um, yeah. But on, whenever we weren't doing stuff with Brock and Venom, I was just so uninterested. Because yeah. watching them fight and bicker and talk about their, their goals, you know, for each other, for mm-hmm. themselves, that's at least attempting to that that's that's closest to the most successful things about these two movies right and yep. when we're just distracting with this really garish uh action CGI fight. it's just yeah. not not compelling you know 
So. Yeah, you know, I, I'm it's not just, one whatever. to, I'm not one to buy as much into the whole like every every Marvel movie devolves into like a CGI fuck fest type take. Like I, I, I have to say like I'm a sucker sometimes for that like the action like even the end of Shang Chi like the two like dragons fighting like it it wasn't what I wanted but I was like okay like thematically it still made sense with the rest of the movie so I didn't mind right. it either. But but this one felt like a total CGI fuck fest by the end. And I was just like totally checked out by the final fight scene. But you're right, like probably my favorite scene in the movie beyond when uh, Venom takes over Mrs. Chen and is you know uh, talking with Michelle Williams and Dan from uh, Veep <laughs> is uh, when Venom goes to the nightclub and is hanging out with Little Sims. I was like, yeah, that was this awesome. Is by far the best part. Everybody's like, great costume. You know, this is amazing. Uh, Amazing scene, loved that shit. But yeah, you're right. When when it gets down to like the oh, let's watch these two CGI symbiotes fight, it really uh really lost me, and I wasn't so interested. But I have to say, my theater loved it. So probably just me. <laughs> my yeah, mine too. I, I saw it on Friday night. I usually don't go to stuff on Friday night, but that meant there was a lot of kids there. And when the No Way Home trailer played, uh, opening credits, it was a pop at the end and i'm sure all these kids have already seen that show but kids love marvel kids love spider-man yeah man. even if venom is uh not high art by any means people still eat it up you know and, and that was yeah. always the funny thing about making a venom standalone movie Every, a lot of people remarked upon this that venom as a character is not that deep in terms of its comics history it's always been kind of dumb and over the top and carnage is even dumber and more over the top than Venom. And you know, I think the, the action-wise, like, Carnage it was just such a non-entity in this yeah. movie. And, and I think the mix is almost too loud at times when he would do that, the weird shriek when he would show up as Carnage. Is, mm-hmm. uh, qu- quite the mess. So I, I wasn't wasn't the biggest fan. But there is a, a post-credit scene. Oh, yeah. From Sony. You know, Sony controls all these film rights for spider-man mm-hmm. and anything related to spider-man and as we've all said they ain't giving this shit up no way yeah, so no way uh kevin feige y- you gotta play ball so venom's coming to the mcu my friends multiverse baby i know what did you think about that after credit scene i mean it's it's kind of goofy but uh i was excited i was like okay we're gonna get the the real like you know multi uh multi-Spider-Man thing going on here, it seems. Right. So I guess my question is, will Venom actually show up in No Way Home, or is this further down the line? Because we know from the No Way Home trailer, you're getting Doc Ock, Alpha Merlina coming back really cool. Seems like uh, Green Goblin, to Willem Dafoe, is also oh, coming back. 100%. And we assume Tobey Maguire, Peter Parker, also going to show up. Maybe Andrew Garfield. Who knows, right? But if you remember, which I know this is asking a lot, but if you remember the Morbius trailer, uh, Michael Keaton's Vulture showed up in that, which was our That's first in- in- instance of an MCU uh, Spider-Man character showing up in a Sony Marvel movie, right? Maybe this is just setting up the broader Sinister Six, however, whatever version of the Sinister Six they're going to create. And then we'll oh. actually get the Sinister Six at a later date, crossing over to the MCU and seeing Tom Holland's Spider-Man. That's kind of my working thought. I don't think literally all these people are showing up in No Way Home in December. I don't think it's going to be quite that big. And 
they put all this time into making Venom a big figure for them in the film sense. So I don't think he's going to be like ham fisted in, in a certain sense. So, yeah. And, and Tom Hardy also is a bit, you know, is a bit, is a big actor. So he's not going to have like a bit part. I don't think so. Uh, a lot of unknown, a lot of speculation, but that's kind of where I've settled on this. But at I, least this, this post credit is just telling you that it's going to come eventually. It's yeah. happening in one form or the other. I think that that's going to be a really interesting, I don't know if it's a dilemma, but an interesting thing to navigate for Sony and Marvel is you're putting all this money into basically establishing Venom as a lovable anti-hero. Um, are you really going to then put him up against Spider-Man and just make him the straight villain? Are they going to become friends? Like, how are you going to work that out? Because like you said, Ed Hardy's not just going to show up for, you know, 20 minutes to get his ass beat by Tom Holland. It's not going to happen. Right. Also, I mean, it would be something to see Tom Hardy's Eddie Brock's performance show up in the MCU just because it is a weird performance, man. Like, it's so weird. Like, honestly, like... The accent? What's going on there? Even putting that to the side, like, this Eddie Brock is not convincing as an investigative journalist. Like, he barely has his mind together at this point, right? It's It's just odd. And again, I like it when he's fighting with Venom in terms of their, the will they won't they and just the, the control of their lives. I like all that. But to see like Eddie Brock in the flesh, played by Tom Hardy, talking to Tom Holland, like they truly are in two different two different movies. So I wonder how that how that would go, you know. Yeah, it's uh it's definitely gonna be interesting whenever it happens. I am excited for Far From Home. Uh, or No Way Home, sorry, No Way Home. Uh, mm-hmm. Me too. I I think it's going to be interesting to see how they work work all this out. Um, but why don't we keep it moving, Dave? Because we go from, uh, you know, Tom Hardy as Venom and all this CGI, and on to uh, Jessica Chastain and all these prosthetics as mm-hmm. Tammy Faye Baker. <laughs> oh man, the eyes of Tammy Faye. Long time coming talking about this film. That's right. Yeah, it came out a few weeks back at this point, so we're getting to it a little late, but uh, definitely cannot be skipped as this has been earmarked as something in the awards mix, namely for Jessica Chastain's performance as Tammy Faye Baker, as you said. And I think probably most convincingly of all would be the makeup and hairstyling team for this movie are in the mix for that Oscar because there's a lot of makeup and there's a lot of hairstyling, which, uh, as the Tam- Tammy Faye story goes, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I have to say, uh, I I did not know much about Tammy Faye Baker or Jim Baker prior to this, so I looked them up. Uh, Very, very flattering portrayals of these two uh, by Jessica Chastain and Andrew Garfield. Yeah, Uh, they're not good, not attractive people. But, uh, anyways, uh, Michael Showalter was the director for this, and uh, you probably know him from Wet Hot American Summer. um, But I think probably the movie that is. most relevant to this is Perks of a Wall. No, no, sorry, I'm getting this confused. Um, well, how American Summer, but then also um, The Big Sick. The Big Sick. Thank you. I was, I was thinking about the uh, Dear Evan Hansen movie. I was gonna say. <laughs> no, uh, we don't. We don't. We're not going. We're not going. Yeah, there. We're, we're not talking <laughs> about that this week. Maybe, maybe down the line. Who knows? Probably not. But um, no, we're, we're not going there. <laughs> but uh, I think when when you know that he's directing this, you, you're expecting some drama with some humor. This is straight drama. And gotta be honest, I found myself pretty bored throughout this movie. Uh, I I was not totally sucked in by it. I thought 
some of some of the performances were pretty good. But overall, I had pretty high expectations for this, and I felt I felt like we got a pretty middling movie overall. How did you feel about just your overall takeaways? Yeah, as a movie, it, it it's more standard biopic fare than I was expecting, and because it's a more traditional biopic, it does not commit to a lot of different lanes nor tones that it could have, and there was definitely a more interesting, more artful movie in this story if someone sought to make it. You know, I, I kind of had the feeling early on when we had that flashback scene first as Tammy Faye as a child, but even like the scene where uh, she meets Jim at college, which I thought Jastain was convincing as like a young college student, to be honest, but all those scenes setting up this backstory, the origins of the Bakers, you know, it's like just unnecessary exposition, I think. I would have loved if this had uh-huh. picked up in media res at, at their peak or at their decline, you know, I just a better script I think could have served the story in a more interesting way and I still enjoyed the film because I wasn't super familiar with the details of uh, this story so just seeing it unfold was interesting to me like it's kind of confusing I guess to keep all these uh, televangelists of that time straight you know we see all them show up right Pat Robertson Jerry Mm -hmm. Falwell the Bakers all these really important figures uh, from the, the, the 70s and 80s um, mainly. And I guess familiar in a certain sense because thematically we kind of nod to this era in Mrs. America last year, FX on Hulu, in terms sure. of the uh, Republican Party's capitulation to the Christian right and the you know bastardization of evangelicalism. And uh, I think the Bakers were... Uh, Pentecostal, but you know, all, all these Christian uh, right leaning folks and how the politics got in on that, right? So, a lot of like thematic things that made sense to me, but yeah, just as a biopic, it's uh, I guess it's also hard to invest in because at the end of the day, these people, as well as the the other televangelists that are on the periphery, they're all frauds, like they're all bad people, yeah, just that despicable had people, bad goals, and a lot of them were really hateful people as well. Mm-hmm. And even if Tam Fey uh, had qualities that are admirable, and this has been explored in past documentaries about her, she was a, a true ally to the LGBTQ people, especially in her later years. That is true. But overall, they're not exactly people that you root for because of these kind of overtly gross public sins. So yeah. it's hard to invest in anything but watching them, watching the demise, you know? Yeah, not, not not to get like too up on my high horse about things, but uh, I feel like it, it definitely um, highlights how uh, certain recent political figures have been able to come to power, even amidst tons of controversy, because it's almost like uh, they're they're just like us. These really powerful people do these really awful things, and they can ask for forgiveness, and they can still be good people, and you know, we, we don't need to say we're sorry to anyone but God, that that sort of thing. Like, it's right. really just, um, I don't know, it's really, like, gross to really sit with these people. And, uh, you know, it's it's interesting, too, because I feel like, though it focused on Tammy Faye a lot, the person I was much more interested in was the stuff with Jim Baker and the stuff going on with him. I mean, total con man, uh, pretty much portrayed 
that way by Garfield right from the beginning. I thought Garfield was pretty good in this role. Um, but, you know, they, they allude to so much about him. And then when it kind of comes out that he had, uh, he rapes uh, uh, Jessica Hahn. And, yes, um, a uh, ministry worker or something yeah. like that. Um, you know, him and another person uh, sexually assaulted her. And then all this other stuff comes out, you know, uh, relationships with men and all this stuff. It's just kind of like put out there, even like yeah. the confrontation between him and Tammy Faye. It's like, yeah, this is, this is going to come out. And she's like, oh, we're ruined. And then they yell at each other and then they make up. And it's just very like anticlimactic to me. And I was like, yada, I wanna, yada. I was like, yeah, exactly. I was like, I want to see these people get fucking fried, bro. Like, I, was, I don't know. That's what I was more with. It probably was just more my, my political leanings, but yeah, well, and that's the other, that's again the other thing too is they don't actually go that far with like Jim Baker and all these other people's leanings towards the 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 right politically. Like they don't actually go that far, right? And like Tammy Faye's good qualities in terms of her uh, greater tolerance, especially compared to her peers here, is also barely in the movie. So it's just there's all these avenues that they just don't go down, and. I would have loved if maybe their their lavish life when everything's going good, the grift is, is, is flowing. That could have been more fun to be a part of, right? It's actually not that cool, even though it's quite clear that they're in these lavish homes and they're spending all this money. But like that also isn't that cool either in terms of how the movie is portraying. So this is a lot yeah. of like lanes that are just not followed up on. And if you had picked one or two of these with a different script, I think it's just, it would have been a more compelling story. Yeah. And I actually think, I think that does work. That choice does work a little bit more telling the Tammy Faye story, because obviously I think they're trying to portray how, uh, the men in these relationships were given the ability to go out and do a lot more of the things that they wanted and a lot more of the despicable acts. And the women were expected to not, I mean, you see even in the movie when Tammy Faye, uh, has a you know pseudo affair on Jim the way that he responds and like kind of puts her back in his place controlling her access to power and wealth and if you were following the Jim Baker story I imagine that would have been a lot more fun because you would have seen him out there you know exploiting people men women boys in every which way and now that would that have been fun to watch would have been horrible but it would have been at least more exciting right. than what we got yeah I don't know. Just overall, I feel like it just fell flat in so many ways and kind of stinks because I feel like Chastain is such a good actress, but mm-hmm. just hasn't hasn't been ha- having good roles recently, really. Molly's Game might have been the best role she's had in the last five years. So I, I did like Chastain as Tammy Faye, even if it, it's, it's a lot of, I guess, like precocious energy and like charisma, like it's not but she's so committed to it and yeah, I do find it quite convincing. And it would have been even better again, because like you can just see it. You could see it if maybe Tammy Faye had more things to do, right? Even like her uh, reliance on like on, on pills once things start yeah. to go south, barely shown, barely like we, we've seen that done in really good ways before, right? You know, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying we need to have her crawling on the f- on the floor like DiCaprio on Quaaludes. I'm not saying we needed that, but like. It could have been done differently, or at least at least in a more engaging way. You know, I mean, fuck, 
you had Heritage USA, one of the biggest theme parks in the history of the country, and it's not even in the fucking movie. Like, that would have been cool, even for a quick yeah. sight gag, you know? Like I know. So I just want to read this off to you real quick. I'm on her uh, Wikipedia rules, rules page. So we have uh, The Martian in 2015. This is Jastain. Jastain, yes. We have The Martian in 2015. 2016, The Huntsman, Winter's War. Mm-hmm. Do you see that? I have not. I've seen the original Snow White, not, not the sequel. Yeah, I haven't I haven't seen it. I haven't really even heard much about that one. It's not not good from what I know. Uh The Zookeeper's Wife. Uh, Molly's game. Mm-hmm. Um Woman Walks Ahead. This changes everything. Dark Phoenix. It Chapter Two. <laughs> Ava. Like this Ava. is this is her run up until the eyes of Tammy Faye. I guess she was in the mm-hmm. Forgiven earlier this year as well. Let's also note scenes from a marriage on HBO. Yes, so that this is just her filmography, um, not her TVography or TV roles. I mean, you know, you go back from The Martian, you got Interstellar, uh, Most Violent Year, yeah, um, Zero Dark Thirty. I mean, she yeah. was killing it. That was prime just, time, yeah, yeah. Been a, a bit of a, a lull. I think Tammy Faye and probably Molly's Game are the two most two roles that stand out there. Molly's Game, I, I like a little bit more than most people, but so oh, it's disappointing. Yeah, no, I agree. Just because, I mean, Chastain kind of pulling up right as a 2010 show up and like, oh, this is a really exciting female presence. That's awesome. And, you know, like you said, there's a good four or five year run in there and it kind of peters out. And we know she's a really good actress. You hope the roles continue to be there as someone who's now how old is she like 40 like she's 44 so like you know how it is with women in Hollywood unfortunately I, I'd like I'd hope that she continues to get good parts yeah. um she does have this movie that I was only got cast in recently it's called The Good Nurse it's about a uh, serial killer uh who murdered as many as 300 patients over his 16 year career as a nurse and Chastain plays the nurse I think I assists in the capture of the serial killer or something like that the serial killer is played by eddie redmayne so that's a movie that could 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 be good that could be a really good role we'll see about that definitely but, uh, i like Jastain. and you know me too dark phoenix and, and ava in particular is quite the and hunters and winners war there's been some stinkers lately and this is definitely a, ret- a, a closer return to her form mm-hmm. uh past form but we're not there yet so hopefully it continues the up the, the, the reclamation yeah, you know, I gotta say, Garfield, someone we've been high on. I thought he was pretty good as well. Um, both of them played pretty convincing, like young people in this movie. I, I don't know if I would say I would buy them to be teenagers, but when they're in like the seminary school or the preaching school or whatever it is, it's like oh, they they look younger. You know, they look like they're in their twenties right here. So, I, uh, I don't know, especially on the same weekend that Dear Evan Hansen comes out and is getting. Yeah, lambasted for Ben Platt looking like he's 45 in some of the scenes. Um, could have done worse. So, Tammy Faye, I think it's worth checking out because I do think, like you said, I think like uh, costume design, makeup design, things like that will probably get some award recognition, but overall, a bit disappointing. Uh, anyways, we wrap up there for this week, Dave. What do we got for next week? Well, at long last, James Bond is back, baby. Yeah. No time to die. Already out overseas in many territories, coming out in the U.S. 
And I think alongside that, we will be talking in depth about who we want to be the next James Bond conversation people have been having for many years already. Because maybe he played Venom already. Who knows? Tom Hardy, perhaps. We'll see. We're also going to be talking about the conclusion of Ted Lasso season two. A uh, up and down season compared to the first in terms of public perception, but still a lot to discuss with that. Uh, some other, we'll talk about some music, but I think also, most importantly, and yet unexpectedly, we're, we'll be late to it, but we're talking about fucking Squid Game on Netflix. Yeah. The, what will soon be the biggest show in the history of Netflix came out of fucking nowhere, because that's what Netflix does, man. It just drop bombs on a random September Friday. Crazy. It's fucking crazy. I'm on Twitter now. I don't understand any of the references because I haven't watched Squid Game. Everybody's watching it. I need to watch it. It's terrible. Yeah. Anyways, it's awesome. yes, we're gonna be so looking forward to that. We're gonna be talking about all that and more. Hit that subscribe, youtube.com slash nostalgia pod, soundcloud.com slash nostalgia pod, and at nostalgia pod on Twitter. We'll see you next week. Yeah.